As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, it seems like there are some tentative signs out there of easing global supply chains. Yes and no. I keep seeing a a mixed bag. And also, I mean, we kind of have to talk in terms of geographies as well. So I know Bloomberg Economics literally just hit the button on a piece of research saying that there seem to be some signs of improvement in the US and Europe. But in places like the UK, things are just getting worse. But of course, even in the US, there's a lot of debate over what exactly it is we're seeing and what we should be looking at in terms of judging whether or not things are actually getting better. Right. There is not like one supply chain index or one measure of prices or one measure of shipping time Mm. that can give us the answer. There's clearly a lot of different moving parts to all this. And so at this point, I think maybe it's safe to say things aren't still getting worse, I think, generally speaking, Mm -hmm. with uh, at least in the U.S. But whether things are like sustainably getting better, whether packages and containers are moving through our system faster, still feels kind of uh, ambiguous. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, uh, we recently spoke with uh, the White House's envoy to the ports, uh, John Porcari, and the White House itself has been putting out some blog posts and some stats saying, look at this improvement, and then other pieces of data say that, eh, that improvement is a mirage. So yeah, I think we've sort of established just a, a lot of questions still out there. I think that's right. And also, when we spoke to Porcari, we said we were going to have to check in on the other side of all of this, which is with the actual port of Los Angeles that the White House, the Biden administration has been working with and see how things are actually going from their perspective. Well, that is what we're doing today. And so I'm very delighted. Uh, We spoke to him back over the summer. We're going to be speaking again for an update on the situation at the Port of Los Angeles. Gene Soroka, the executive director at the Port of Los Angeles. Thank you so much for coming on Odd Good to be here, Joe and Tracy. Thank you. Thank you so much. So why don't you just, uh, you know, give us the sort of very big picture, how things look today. We're recording this December 13th. Our, uh, the last time we had you on, it was early August. Why don't you give us a little bit of a comparison between what's going on right now and then? Well, if we talked back in the summertime, late summer, and folks told me that we would be nearing 
and surpassing the all-time record for holiday sales, according to the National Retail Federation, and had a chance to also simultaneously break the all-time record for retail sales in the country, I think there'd be a lot of skeptics led by me. But that appears to be where we're headed right now. Now, behind that, there are a lot of there are a lot of storylines. There are nuanced effects. There are so many variables in each equation. There's a lot to unwrap here on today's podcast, but happy to be with you both. So what is it that you're watching now in terms of actually judging how much you're moving through the port? Because we had this conversation with Porcari a little while ago. We were talking, for instance, about the number of ships that are waiting off the coast. And he was emphasizing that we should all be looking at throughput and the number of actual containers that are moving through the port. So from that perspective, how are things going? Sure. I, I think we've gained some traction in a number of areas, but in all sincerity, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You do a couple of things pretty well as a supply chain, and no one individual or no one entity is pulling every lever, as you both well know. But soon as something gets a little bit more traction or on better footing, something else jumps up and you have to approach it right away, too. So looking at what we have been doing, I'll give you a couple of indicators. One, the number of idle containers sitting on the port's marine terminals has decreased by 60 percent since October 24th. And that's when we first started discussing with the industry the potential of levying a penalty for the aging containers sitting on our docks. Second, the ongoing productivity at the ship level continues at record pace. We're welcoming more vessels that are worked every day at the Port of Los Angeles than ever before, and on average, 50% better than when the surge began. And the other piece to this is that we're starting to see those signs on the macroeconomic level of the U.S. that are so encouraging, including the statements by the National Retail Federation, overall inventories at the warehouse level nationwide, and the in-store or in-stock shelf where uh, inventories at the retail level that are just about a percentage point below where they were a year ago. Let's talk about the ships that are docked out because some have said, well, sure, you can decrease the number of uh, containers that are aging, waiting for there simply by uh, just having them be on the ships and that ultimately it doesn't really change much. The number of ships, at least up the latest stats that I've seen, or at least up until recently, have gone up. What is going on with that? And is there some sort of is there some sort of mirage here where those containers, instead of aging uh, on dry land, are aging uh, out on a boat? Yeah, one I would say no mirage, but here again, Joe, this is really nuanced, and I'll try to carry you through where we were what we look like today and where we're going in the future. Uh, much of the dialogue around the ports, and again, this is a global supply chain, but around the ports has been how many ships do you have sitting outside at what we call anchor? So we dutifully measured and reported on that daily, as you both well know, on our hero slide of our homepage at the Port of Los Angeles are a litany of statistics that we look at every day, including major ones that have drawn the attention of observers, and industry partners alike, especially those vessels at anchor. And then recently, 
as of the 16th of November, the private sector industry folks decided to put a new process in place when it comes to the liner shipping vessels that come our way every day. So I'll explain this in two pieces, where we were and where we are right now. We looked at and we show on our operations report every morning after our 0900 staff meeting here at the Port of Los Angeles, how many ships are in, how many ships are at anchor, what's on their way over the next three days. And that had been fairly traditional so everybody could keep up with what's happening. On November 16th, the industry went to what they call a queuing system. And what they were trying to do was get after three areas that were problematic. Number one, pollution in and around our residential areas of the ports. With all these ships stacked up for an elongated period of time waiting to come into the ports, there was more pollution. That had to be dealt with. Second was the safety of our crews and the vessel assets because they were coming over here, sitting outside the breakwater, very close to each other. We've experienced some high wind events recently that got the ships moving in the ocean-going seas a little bit closer to each other than we would have liked. In fact, there was a lot of us that were really concerned about that. And then thirdly, the reason they were rushing over and sitting at anchor was because that was the protocol for putting in the requests for the dock workers, making sure we had enough folks on the job to work each one of those individual vessels. So the industry decided to do this. You were allowed to put in your requests or orders for dock workers as you left Asia. Therefore, you didn't have to race across the Pacific simply just to get in line. You were allowed to stay a little bit further out as agreed upon for industry protocol, and let's call it 150 miles offshore. In that setting, you could sit farther apart from each other if you had to and de-risk that potential for collision in a high wind event. Thirdly, it moves all those emissions farther offshore and nowhere near the proximity of the residential areas here in Los Angeles and Long Beach. So that was the backstory to all this. Now, because we're the folks that are looked to for transparency and the posting of all these numbers and information, we had to get to work to recalibrate along with industry how we would report out and create an apples to apples comparison of what we would have looked. So today, as an example, outside of the waters of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, under this new definition, we have 94 ships that are waiting to come into the port to do their work. If we use that same definitioning back on November 16th, we would have had 89 ships sitting waiting to come into port. Most of us in the industry call that anchorage. At the Port of Los Angeles specifically, we have 43 ships that fall into that category of waiting to come in to do their work. And if we use that same definitioning back on November 16th, it would have been 44. So again, the comparison of the definition was really important to get out to the public, to the media community and others. And we look pretty similar on those two specific dates based on what the private sector industry has brought forward as a new process.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So I wanted to go back to uh, something you said earlier about the number of containers that are, you know, sitting at the ports waiting to be loaded onto trucks or rail. I think you said that that number is down something like 60%. Was that right? That's correct. And those are the containers that we defined as sitting at the port nine days and longer back on October 25th. So one of the reasons or the big reason those are down is because you have threatened to impose this charge, this $100 fee on containers that are either stuck there, I think, for for nine days or in some cases, it's six days or more. My question is, why not just start imposing that fee? Why just have the threat of it? I mean, I, I get that you've achieved a pretty dramatic reduction with just the threat. But at some point, do you need to sort of follow through on what you're saying? Potentially. And that's why the ability to charge this fee has been under my authority and will be so until the end of January. But we have kept the fee in suspension because we've seen progress in the industry. If you go back to our Emergency Harbor Commission meeting back at the end of October, I told our Board of Harbor Commissioners that I hope this is a miserable failure. That would mean, quite simply, that we're moving cargo and we would not collect any money. To date, we have not collected any money, and we've seen a decrease in those aging containers because everybody pulled together. Now, obviously, there was a financial interest in this. People did not want to get penalized. People did not want to see a problematic situation get worse. At the same time, we were able to use this fee to also segment cargo. And there was admittedly cargo on our docks that was not needed right now at that snapshot in time, nor is it today. It may have been a little late as seasonal product that had already moved past its market. It may be a little early for next spring. And we were able to figure this out through the data mining in the port optimizer, our port community system. We worked with the retailers, other large importers, and said, there's no shame here. Let's just move this cargo away for the time being so we could really move the product to market that needed to get there. Think of holiday products 
and parts and components for our factories across the nation. Let's go in a little bit more clarity about why the containers built up so much in the first place, because I feel like I have two different ideas in my head. One is perhaps that the container owners viewed it as free storage, and maybe the inland warehouses are like 98% capacity, so no rush taking it off the dock. The other thing that we've talked about before with, I think you and some other guests, is just that there is a traffic jam at the port for the dray truckers to even get the containers off the port, and that there's only so many of them that can get in, you know, in the course of a day, and when they're uh, traffic jammed, they can't get them out. So what were, in your view, the underlying conditions that caused the buildup to get as bad as it did? Joe, it was both pl plus probably a, a dozen other issues. There were importers who admittedly brought in cargo just in case, not just in time as we had done in the past. Many folks knew that once we started to get wound up as we saw the American consumer demand really increase, that they were going to have to get orders into factories in Asia as quick as they could and faster than their competitors. So maybe they ordered a few more lounge chairs or patio sets, maybe some flat screens well ahead of the time for the Super Bowl, which is the biggest sales time for TVs and a variety of other important commodities. On the other side, we had and saw many examples on the ground of importers having a very difficult time getting their containers off port property. And that could have been a trucker stuck in a long line. That could have been an empty return policy of a terminal. It could have been a bad order chassis or not enough chassis at the right place. So it was never a, a, a situation where we were just saying, okay, this is the only reason we're gonna go after it. Just like other areas of the supply chain, they're so nuanced and there are so many reasons behind the inefficiencies that you just have to keep chipping away. So we did work with some of the large retailers and say, if you don't need your cargo right now, let's just move it to the side. And they were so gracious in working with us because they knew that they also had product that has to be speeded up to get to market. Then with the smaller and seasonal folks, we said, okay, if we can do this and get a little more maneuverability on our terminal tarmacs, we're going to get to your product. But we're going to do it through a program called Accelerate Cargo LA, where we turn this into a push system. It's not simply wait for the hours of operation and sign up for your appointment. We know where your cargo is, how long it's been here. We're going to come to you and say, this is how much cargo we have and we can move out every day. You're going to commit to us that you'll take that amount of cargo. You'll have the truck power. We'll circle with the chassis people and the terminal operators. It was everybody working in that node to make sure we could deliver. The other piece to this was also working with those nodes. If we needed a more standardized process on export and empty returns, that's why John Picari was having the meetings three times a week with industry stakeholders. And these were decision makers. So we went after it with a wide of a lens as possible and keeping our perspective that knowing we got one piece right, we'd probably have three other pieces we had to get after next. I want to ask you as well about the um, the expansion to operating 24-7. How is that actually going and what obstacles have you had to, you know, sort of surmount in order to expand the working hours? Because 
I remember when you came on last, we were talking about, for instance, the difficulty of um, the tightness of the labor market and the difficulty of, you know, either convincing existing workers to work night shifts or getting new ones in who would be able to um, work that schedule. And we were also talking a little bit with various guests about local noise ordinances and pollution restrictions and things like that. And basically just the difficulty of moving to this 24 hour schedule. And yet it seems like, uh, like you've made it happen. So what's changed on that front? All of that's true, Tracy. And, and your recollection is absolutely spot on. I'll take you back to October 13th, when I had the privilege of meeting with the president of the United States directly. We had other meetings with Secretary Buttigieg, Brian Deese, the director of the NEC, and so many leaders on the cargo ownership side. We at the Port of Los Angeles traditionally work about 19 hours a day, day shift from eight to five, cleaning and, and sanitizing of equipment, then a nightside shift from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. We're trying to look at squeezing every hour of productivity from this port that we possibly could. And working that three to eight shift or what we call the hoot shift was another one of those opportunities. The president in his announcement was also trying to get this largely private sector supply chain on the same schedule as the port meaning that the truckers who have 11 hours of service permitted to them by the federal government every day, and if they run consecutive days, must take time off, have to get on that schedule to be serviced better, run at nighttime when there's less traffic on our roads and freeways. The warehousing complexes of which we boast more than 2 billion square foot of space from the shores of the Pacific out to the Southern California desert region traditionally operate during the day. And both segments have a dearth of workers on the job right now. It's been stated by the American Trucking Association that we're short about 80,000 drivers nationwide. And I would tell you here in Southern California's ports, we could use probably three or 4,000 more truckers. Nationwide, we have job openings for 400,000 warehouse workers and maybe eight to 10,000 here in Southern California alone. So we've got to, when we can catch our breath one day here in the future, we need to look at how we turn these two segments into professions again. We may have to look at compensation and benefits, but we have to find a way as a broader industry, both public, the federal, state, local governments, as well as the private sector, transportation and customers of the port to see what we can do to attract, recruit and retain folks in this area. My grandfather was a Teamsters trucker for the American Can Company in New York City for 40 years. He put children through school. He built a home on his own. Today, we've got to find a way to look at the jobs in that same way. It's an uphill climb. I know that that's a lot of work in front of us, but we've got to have enough folks in these segments to be able to operate on the same schedule. As an example, the ports can operate. So moving forward and, and opening up this dialogue has been good. We still also only use a, a certain percentage of our truck appointments every day. Again, for a variety of reasons, some operational, some the cargo is just not needed, and others that we have to improve upon. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the role that uh, Perkari and the White House have played? So you mentioned three meetings a week. When he came on the podcast, he talked about his role as simply being like a, an honest broker, someone who was trusted by all the different parties. What happened 
or what has happened or what is happening in those discussions? And how does simply getting everyone on the same page allow greater throughput with the same physical resources as before? Uh, without this and without John, I would say right now we'd be having a very different conversation, Joe. This all started back in February when President Biden wrote up the executive order on supply chain that also asked for a deeper look into certain commodities. Think these uh, microchips that go into our phones, our automobiles and our computers. And then the president created the Supply Chain Disruption Task Force, tri-chaired by the Secretaries of Labor, Transportation, and Commerce. Next out of that shoot was the July 15th virtual roundtable chaired by Secretary Buttigieg that had all private sector industry leaders join, in addition to the ports in Southern California and some others. Shortly after that roundtable, John Picari was named as Port Envoy, and we began going through all of the details, all of the personnel, and all of the requirements of this industry. Had we not had that inertia, beginning with President Biden's EO, all the way through the personnel moves he made, we'd be in a much different place. John's accessibility has been first and foremost one of the best things that's happened. He's been able to use that cachet to bring together the necessary decision makers in the industry. And while no one is declaring victory and we have a tremendously long path in front of us, I think we're a lot better for having John around and helping us get to those decision points we needed. First and foremost was dating back to the summertime, many folks thought that we were going to have a real rough go of it when it comes to the retail market and especially the holiday season. But as I reported to John and many, many members of the media, including you both, our savvy American import community began bringing holiday goods in as early as June because they saw the longer lead times, the transit times being extended, and so many complexities in the supply chain. Even though that created a real storm of cargo, think keeping up with consumer demand, holiday goods and seasonal goods, back to school, fall fashion, Halloween, all converging at one time this summer, it really helped get us in a position to have some semblance of progress leading up to the holiday buying season. Many folks also have said that they started shopping earlier this season at the recommendation of what they saw from the federal and state governments, what they heard from the ports and what they heard from shows like this. Get out there a little earlier and see if you can take that time to start your holiday shopping season with an eye on just that in mind. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart 
That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So are there ever any areas of tension that might arise between, you know, an appointee from the federal government and a business? I mean, I know you're owned by uh, the city of Los Angeles, but you're still a business trying to generate revenue and some income for the city. And I can imagine, for instance, when um, John Porcari says that, well, maybe we should be rerouting a lot of containers to different ports that actually have the capacity to move them. I could imagine that that might be something undesirable for the Port of Los Angeles. You know, in normal times, Tracy, you're correct. But at this point in time, in, within uh, operating in a 100-year pandemic with consumer buying surge, the likes of which we've never seen, supply chain disruption worldwide, but maybe more acute here in the United States because of the size of our economy and the spotlight that's been on us, this was a time I felt you had to take off your local hat and do what was in the best interest of the country for economic recovery, pulling people together and everything in between. It also just happens to be the case that the cargo that traverses the port of Los Angeles reaches each of our nation's 435 congressional districts, therefore automatically it is a conversation of national significance. And we have talked about bringing some of these new entrants to the trade, carrying smaller quantities of cargo on smaller vessels, bring those to other ports, whether it be Oakland, San Diego, Wyneme up in Ventura County. If the four corner strategy had to be deployed again by certain importers, meaning bringing more cargo to the Eastern Gulf Coast, if that's part of the equation, that's okay too. But still, even with all of the details and all of the concerns in this U.S. supply chain today, bringing more and more cargo through the Southern California Gateway is the best opportunity we have right now to make a difference for the U.S. economy. But again, it just comes down to situational awareness and doing what's best for the United States of America. What's the opportunity with the infrastructure money that's been allocated to ports? What, uh, what will that do for the port system or specifically your port? I think specifically for our port, it will allow us to accelerate projects that we classify as shovel ready. We have the financial wherewithal and capability, and that's how we were able to invest through cycle and keep 3,000 construction jobs going when it was difficult in other sectors, as we've talked about before. Those shovel-ready projects begin with a workforce training and development center that will be the first of its kind in the United States. As we know, 
technology, robotics, and the transition to this next level is going to be difficult on the workforce, but we cannot leave them behind. So this workforce training center is designed to reskill, upskill, and promote opportunities for the next generation of worker. Think of a mechanic who goes to work with a toolbox today. They may be upgrading and fine-tuning that equipment with a computer tomorrow, and those are the skills they're going to need. Second is repurposing land. As we've seen more of this cargo flow and how it's changed, we're going to have to repurpose land and develop what we call grade separations, flyovers. So we're not getting in the way of local commuters and school buses, but allowing for trucks and trains to move and remove bottlenecks. That's what's going to happen here in Los Angeles. And over the last 10 years, the federal government and U.S. Congress have out-invested the West Coast ports at a rate of 11 to 1. That means about $11 billion has gone to ports on the East and Gulf Coast compared to a little more than $1 billion here on the West Coast. And with 40% of the nation's imports coming through Southern California, I think the best return on investment for the American citizen is right here in Los Angeles and Long Beach. At the very beginning of our conversation, you described uh, a lot of these supply chain strains as sort of being um, like whack-a-mole. You know, you kind of get a handle on one of them and then a new issue pops up. What are the major issues now? What's your area of focus and what's taking up the most of your time, if you could be as specific as possible? Sure. Uh, I think it all starts with consumer demand and it remains elevated. And that's great because 70 percent of our GDP is driven by us buying products. And I'm no different than anybody else right now. We've got to look at what fulfillment means compared to traditional bricks and mortar retail sales and have a good focus on that. So that's breaking down a segment or two within that import retail system that maybe we need a finer look at. We've got to be able to scale better as an industry, both up when we see these surges and back down during what we call slack season or, or ebbing of the flow. The next piece are, are all these undercurrents that have happened since COVID-19 began. Remember, even dating back to the days of the, uh, the trade policy in the previous administration, we went about eight months importing 20% less than we normally do. And then we pivoted so quickly to all of us buying more product than ever before. So this surge predominantly has been the American importer just trying to keep up with the consumer's demand. We next will have to manage an early Lunar New Year so the imports will remain elevated. And we're seeing that in the number of ships coming across the Pacific right now. Then in the second quarter, the retailers and home improvement stores are telling me they're going to focus on inventory replenishment because our inventory sales ratio is still the lowest it's been in a decade. While we have seen inventories move up, they need to get better according to the experts. Built within all of this because of the import strength, empty containers have piled up. And there's been a big conversation among John Picari's meetings of how we get those empties evacuated to keep the terminal tarmacs fluid and, and make sure we have the most maneuverability possible. Because we saw what happened when imports piled up. Everything got gummed up right there at the Marine Terminal. I don't want to have the same issue repeat itself with empty containers. So we've asked, and in some cases implored our shipping lines, bring in these sweeper vessels, bring in as much capacity as you can, even though there's not much in the marketplace right now, but use every available slot 
to get these empties out. Focus on what you can do for the American exporter and turn those containers as quickly as possible so we can keep the sense of fluidity. And it all pans out because we've seen our container dwell time. So the time the container sits be cut in about half for trucking and down to pre-surge lows for our rail product right now. So again, all of these KPIs and measurables are looked at every day and each one has a knock-on effect. Right now, empties. But again, Tracy, to your point, we're not just focused on empties and letting everything else run. Empties have risen to the awareness level that we need, but we're still looking at that stream of another dozen KPIs that we have to manage every day. So you mentioned the Lunar New Year. You mentioned the eventual uh, Q2 restocking, and that's going to be a huge source of demand continued. At that point, I don't know if we're looking at middle of 2022, would you expect to see the number of ships at anchor and some of these other metrics start to meaningfully decline? Yeah, that's the goal, Joe. Uh, I can't predict exactly when we hit this certain number or or what the ship sitting at anchor will look like, but I'm, I'm starting to see a little more clearly what segments of upcoming demand will be, and it's based on the expert advice, what our data mining is, is showing us, but it'll give us a chance. If we do these next couple iterations the right way, as an industry, as a collective, we got a chance to position ourselves next summertime to pivot into a peak season where we have a real chance to improve that supply chain certainty that has been so elusive to date. Any concerns about the Omicron variant? Tracy, every day there's something in the news that's impacting the supply chain, and that's one of them. With Omicron, we're looking at exactly what we can do, what our backup plans are going to be across the ocean, as well as right here at home. At this point, we don't see anything that's really debilitating in the industry. We've shown we can pivot to the second and third waves of COVID-19 that hit South and Central China earlier this year. We've been extremely resilient on the docks here in Los Angeles, as well as our trucking firms and our warehouses. We just need to keep our eye on the prize every day and keep those contingency plans at the forefront should something happen that requires us to pivot very quickly. Well, Gene, uh, Gene Soroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles, thank you so much for coming on Oddlots. Joe Tracy, always good speaking with you. Thank you again. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you next summer. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. Look forward to it. Hey, available for you anytime. No problem at all. All right, take care. So I think just in that conversation, it's pretty clear how you there's it's sort of hopeless. The idea of like, oh, we're going to like get one measure that tells us whether the supply chain is getting better. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I was thinking maybe we should start a supply chain index. We should. And honestly, if we could, we could probably make a lot of money. Like if we like, oh, this is the one and it became the reference. We probably do really start well. doing options or derivatives tied to the all supply chain. Yeah, futures, chain futures, supply <laughs> chain futures. We, we'd help the industry by allowing them to hedge. No, but your question, it's like, you know, he mentioned the whack-a-mole and then your question at the end is like, okay, what are you like, well, <laughs> what are you going after right now? Like what's popping up? Sort of mm -hmm. like got at it. Like it really does seem like 
it's still, you know, there are some areas where they're getting better. It sounds like legitimately there are fewer uh, containers on the ground on dry land there. But still, the number of issues that continue to arise seems pretty uh, extraordinary. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that's coming through pretty clearly is this idea of the first quarter of 2022 after Lunar New Year, which I think this year is, um, I think it's the first week of February. Everyone, again, seems to be coalescing around that moment as the sort of inflection point where we should actually start to see yeah. some measurable improvement, I guess, incontrovertible improvement in supply chain issues. So again, like, I feel like that's going to be an interesting moment to watch. And then we're going to have this booming demand because of the inventory restocking, which should keep like GDP generally uh, pretty strong in the U.S. because we're running pretty lean, as he mentioned. So there is this there is this big like sort of well of demand waiting out there for retailers to catch their breath and actually uh, uh, get up to inventory levels that they're comfortable with. Yeah, that's true. Although I feel like you could also argue it the other way, which is, you know, like maybe people have been over ordering already in response right. to very strong consumer demand. And, you know, if the economy starts to slow, which it potentially could do in 2022, then suddenly they're not going to need as many goods as they thought they were. So I guess... Again, like the big theme that kind of comes through all of this is just how difficult all these supply chain issues and ordering and inventory actually yeah. are to predict, like how hard it is and how often we seem to get it wrong and how that tends to lead to uh, problems that become very, very difficult to solve. I've been thinking about this because like, look, like it's December uh, 2021. So we're basically like two years solidly. Mm. Into, I mean, it, you know, you could say March 2020 is when it really started, but I, we first heard about it in December uh, 2019. So we're like two years into this. And no one, or let's say not nobody, but not many people would have guessed in December 2019 that we'd still be talking about this pandemic so much two years later. It really seems like it makes it hard to plan anything. And so you think about investment, you think about, oh, you know, sort of permanent changes or what are appropriate levels of ordering or inventory levels. It's pretty hard to uh, predict. And so, you know, you think about like supply chain persistence, inflation persistence, and so forth. Like, it seems like probably a lot of that is simply because the last two years have simply been so unpredictable. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, just think back to March 2020. If you told someone then that we were going to have a big boom in consumer yeah. spending within the next year, I think everyone would have thought you were crazy. And that's exactly what we had. And partly because we didn't expect it is the reason that we are now encountering so much trouble because people cut back on their inventories and didn't make the appropriate amount of investment. And so we're suffering, you know, still almost a year and a half on. And the pandemic is still going on, and we really, like, you know, in some sense, life is normalizing, but it's not normal, and we really do not know when we'll be at some sort of, like, okay, this is a, this is stability. Like, we really have no idea, and so, you know, any anything here in terms of ordering or goods, the good services mix, it's still pretty much guesswork. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, shall we leave yeah. it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. 
And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow uh, the Port of Los Angeles on Twitter, headed by Gene Soroka. Their handle is at Port of LA. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.